The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the editorial team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, a show where I investigate the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. Everything shifted for Carolyn Everson a few years ago, in a moment she didn't see coming. Carolyn's got a big job. She's in charge of the global business group at Facebook, which means she runs a big part of Facebook's revenue. And she was getting ready to speak at a leadership event for the women in her company. Now, it should have been a slam dunk, a friendly audience. Yet standing there in the stage wings, she seemed so not confident. Cheryl Sandberg was there with her and asked her about it. And I literally blurred out, I was fired from Pets.com in 1999, and it was my own company. People get fired from other companies, but I got fired from my own company. We all have things we don't put on our resume. Things we're afraid other people may eventually find out about. Things that deeply embarrass us. For Carolyn, it was Pets.com. She'd helped launch the company, and it was supposed to be her big first job after business school. Instead, she'd graduated without a job and was so much shame that she didn't talk about it for years. It's still not on her LinkedIn profile. In the Wikipedia entry for Pets.com, you won't find Carolyn's name anywhere. But she discovered that nearly two decades later, that fear, left unspoken, had still been driving her. Confidence and vulnerability travel together. This is something we're all beginning to realize and embrace, as shame researcher Brene Brown has told us. You know, I think the most daring, transformative leaders that we've worked with acknowledge the fear and acknowledge the, 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 the drive. I mean, this is a really limbic drive to put on some armor and self-protect. So this week, I wanted to talk to Carolyn about what it means to embrace this vulnerability and incorporate it into how you work and how you lead. Here's Carolyn. Okay, so what was your first post-college job? Well, when I was at Villanova, my brother, who's 10 years older than me, had already had his MBA and JD, and he was really encouraging me to go into business, like look at business opportunities. And so the two types of jobs that were coming to campus were investment banking jobs and consulting, but more on the computer consulting, like the tech consulting jobs. I wound up getting hired. I was the only person not from an Ivy and the only woman to get hired um, in 1993. And I started my career at Anderson, which is now Accenture. And it was a great foundation to do that at age 21. Did you have a sense that you wanted to be a career woman? I always knew I wanted to work. My mom, you know, instilled a couple of lessons in me. I mean, she instilled many, but one was the importance of education. She said, no one can ever take away your degree, but you could get fired, ironically enough. And she also told me I need to be independent and be able to earn my own income and not be dependent on another person. And so those were instilled at a very young age. So the moment I could start earning income, I did. I babysat. I taught tennis. I worked at the local club. I mean, I did everything I could to earn my own income and my own spending money to give me that independence. That was really important to me growing up. Also, I grew up in a very middle-class family where, you know, we did not take vacations. Like, I took a couple of vacations growing up. Like, you know, money was tight. And so I always wanted to be able to contribute. So you went from consulting to Harvard Business School. Well, actually, I had one other step. I went from consulting to the Walt Disney Company, which was a wonderful step. And I spent about two years at Disney and in their Imagineering group. 
And so then you went to Harvard Business School. I did. While you were at Harvard, you got involved in one of the most iconic companies of the Web 1.0 era. Everybody knows the sock puppet, Pets.com. I'd love for you to tell that story. When I was at Disney, I had gotten my own dog, and I named him Pluto, which was appropriate. And one of my projects at Disney was to look at whether or not Disney could build a pet resort. Every year at that time, 18,000 dogs and cats would go into the kennel, which looked like every other kennel around the country. And I was like, this could be so interesting. Think of the characters, the Dalmatians, and Pluto would be amazing. So I had done a that lot of work. That would be amazing. Right? It was it still, be, I, I mean, I'm such I a dog think, person. I still think it would be amazing. So if anyone's listening from Disney, I still think they should do it. But So I had done a ton of work on pet resorts. And so when I went into business school, it was the dot-com craze. Everyone was thinking about what kind of company should I start. And so I was like, well, what, what do I naturally love? I love pets. And I had done so much research. And I knew how passionate people were about them. So I wrote a business plan, but I didn't have the domain name. And so I searched for the domain name. At the time, Greg McLemore had owned a ton of domain names, pets being one of them. And I reached out. He wouldn't sell it to me, but he said, I'll partner with you. And so we partnered together, raised $5 million from the VC community, back and forth trips between Boston and Silicon Valley. And that's how early the internet was, that pets.com was actually just something you could get. Correct. Yes. Well, I mean, early pe- days. Early days, people acquired a lot of it. Like right. Toys.com was another one that he had had and like basic names. And so when we raised the money, it was my second year of business school. I had turned down every other traditional job. So I had worked for the summer prior at Goldman Sachs and Bain. I split my summer between those two companies. I turned down every job because I was on this path. And when we raised the money, it was like this unbelievable success story. Everyone was celebrating us at school, the teachers, the dean. Everyone's like, this is going to be amazing. I was ready to make huge personal sacrifices. I was married at the time. My husband, Doug, was going to live in New York and continue to work there. I was going to live in San Francisco. I had been searching for apartments. Like, I was ready to live this dream. I was all set until... About a couple of weeks before graduation, I was asked to go back out to California because the VC firm had found a CEO, which we had agreed. I was not ready. I was fully on board with them getting the CEO. I met with her, and it was obvious in the first few minutes that she saw the business so differently than I did. So it was a rough meeting, but I did not know how rough until I got back to Boston and walked into my dorm room, and there was a fax and the facts, a facts, a fax, because I am that old. Yes, um, I have to remind people at Facebook what a fax is. But yes, and it was that I was no longer needed at the company, and I was essentially terminated. It was like I, I think of that, you know, the agony of defeat when you think about the Olympic skier that flies off. It went from like the highest of highs from a career standpoint, and the lowest of lows. And I could not pull myself together, quite honestly. That following week were my final exams. I had done very well at school. I was going to graduate, you know, in the top portion of my class. I put a baseball cap on, and I cried. And I cried every single day. And I kept my head down, and I would just get into the classroom. And I will say the community there was incredibly supportive. You know, I was embarrassed, like, royally embarrassed, but they were so supportive and they got me through. But I walked down that graduation path and got my degree with my family there, all proud that I had done this. But I graduated without a job. 
and with a dream that was crushed. So this was by far and away the biggest failure that I had experienced. And I really was very ill-equipped to process it and handle it. I imagine that that's not something that you worked out just during that chapter of your life. I'm curious how that event has impacted the things that have come after it. Well, it, it's, it really has impacted me substantially, and it took many years after that to realize how much it had impacted me. So right after that, I wound up doing a lot of freelance consulting work for the summer to really get my feet back on the ground and say, okay, what do I want to do? And there were about eight other pet companies that were getting funded, and so they were very interested, but I wasn't sure I wanted to go do that because it was just so hard for me to think about, okay, I'm going to go do this with another company. So I was trying to find my own way career-wise, but I think the biggest impact that it had is it rocked my confidence more than I ever really understood for many years to come. I never talked about Pets.com until I got to Facebook, and it took me a few years at Facebook. So think about it. This happened in 1999. I got to Facebook in 2011, and I did not talk about it for several years after that. So it's about 14, 15 years where it was not on my resume. It was not discussed. Only the closest people to me back then knew about it, and they weren't discussing it. And what it really, I think, if I reflect on, well, what did this do to me? Every day I was afraid of getting fired. Every day. So if my boss called a meeting on Friday that was unexpected, I was definitely getting fired. If somebody left a message for me, my boss, and I missed the call, he was, they mostly were he, he was calling to fire me. And that really can wear you down, but yeah. it also can motivate you. I felt like I always had to prove that I was worthy of whatever job I was in. And that really was a rocky period of time. I did well. From a career standpoint, I don't think anybody, if you look back, would be like, oh, I noticed that about her. But I do now. But I also think that I lost the confidence of having my voice to speak really what I thought. And one of the most important things is you have to have and own your voice. And I've regained my voice in the last seven years at Facebook. And that's been a big change for me. Coming up after the break, we hear from LinkedIn's managing news editor, Caroline Fairchild, on why vulnerability is having a moment. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. And we're back with our managing news editor, Caroline Fairchild. Hey, Caroline. Hey, Jesse. It's great to be back. So we've heard from senior leaders for quite some time about this topic of being vulnerable in the office. But I think you and I can both say that this really hit a breaking point with Brene Brown's Netflix documentary that came out last month. Everyone was talking about it. It was like vulnerability at work was this new topic of discussion. I think it's important here to define what we mean by vulnerability. Right. It's a really misused term. And I think when people hear vulnerability, they think it just means oversharing, talking way too much about yourself at work. But in reality, it means putting yourself out there, taking emotional risks as a leader to show the people that you work with that you're human. And the work of Brene and others clearly demonstrate that to be an effective leader, you have to do this. And leaders like Carolyn have figured this out as well. It's this idea that you shouldn't be afraid to take emotional risks in the office. 
Why is it so important to take those risks? It's hard to come up with new ideas if being vulnerable or failing isn't acceptable. I mean, think about it. If you're not allowed to be vulnerable, then you really are in kind of a stifling work environment where new ideas won't come to bear. It's obviously not just Brene who's driving this idea forward. Right. This is something that executive coaches and other thought leaders have been talking about for quite some time. There are executive coaches like Jerry Colonna who have started whole businesses around this idea that to discover your true leadership style. He works with his clients to talk openly about their upbringing and their failures, and the results kind of speak for themselves. Jesse, this is something that you know a lot about because you profiled Jerry in Wired in 2017. I did. I wrote about Jerry and what I find so interesting about his approach and why I think it resonates for so many of the startup and tech company founders that he works with is that he asks his clients to get in touch with their own feelings because he believes that it's going to make them better leaders. You don't see a lot of business coaches doing that today. I have to wonder how gender plays into this discussion as well. I mean, do men and women deal with vulnerability differently? Of course. But I do think that there are a lot of misconceptions around vulnerability and women that we need to address. For better or for worse, people hear vulnerability at work and they just conjure images in their head of like weepy women in their offices. And Jerry bucks that trend. And there are other definitions of both male and female leaders being vulnerable at work that show us that you can be vulnerable and powerful. One of my favorite examples of this is a story about Howard Schultz. He's the former chairman and CEO of Starbucks. I read it in this book that came out earlier this year called No Hard Feelings by Molly West Duffy and Liz Fosslane. So when Howard Schultz returned to Starbucks in 2008 to lead it, he cried in a meeting in front of the entire company, thousands of employees. It was right at the beginning of the recession, and the company just wasn't doing well. And he stayed up for nights trying to figure out what to do, and he realized he needed to be open with his employees about how he was feeling vulnerable as well. And it really worked. He got over 5,000 emails after the meeting from employees thanking him for just being real. Of course, Howard just didn't get up on stage and cry and let that be that. He also presented the company with a plan for how he was going to get Starbucks back on track. I like this example because I think it clearly demonstrates how being open in the office paired with having a vision for how to move the business forward is a winning combination for the next generation of leaders. And this is something I want to hear from listeners about to you, Caroline. Do you have a story about what it means to be vulnerable at work? Send us a voice memo to hellomonday at linkedin.com or post on LinkedIn using the hashtag hellomonday. Thanks a lot, Caroline. Thanks, Jesse. Now back to my conversation with Carolyn Everson. At Facebook, Carolyn works closely with Sheryl Sandberg, the company's COO. I'm curious how you got to the aha moment where you, you realized that actually for many, many years you had been carrying around the fear of being fired. I was working with a coach my entire time at Facebook. So Lisa McCarthy, who's been coaching me, and she and I have known each other for years, she, in my development plan, she would always talk about my confidence issues. But we never really drilled in, I don't think, enough on, like, where did it come from? She was just acutely aware that I had them, that I was intimidated sometimes to say what I really thought in meetings, and I really wasn't owning my own voice. So that was very helpful because she had been working on this with me for a number of years. But there was a moment right backstage before I was supposed to go on stage in front of about a 1,000 women at Facebook's Women's Leadership Day and Cheryl and I were backstage, and she just turned to me in the middle of a conversation. She goes, I just, sometimes you have like these confidence issues. 
I probably said to her, I'm very nervous about getting out there. And she was, I think it's is how it happened. And I just turned back around and said, because I was fired. And she was like, she looked at me with these big wide eyes and she's like, what are you talking about? And I literally blurred out, I was fired from Pets.com in 1999 and it was my own company. People get fired from other companies, but I got fired from my own company. And she said, she had this really quizzical look and she said, well, what if I fired you right now? And I was like, I literally, my heart sank. I was like, oh my God, that was like not the uh, reaction I was expecting. And she said, no, my point is you would be okay. And so that conversation, the work with my coach, all of it sort of pulled together for me to get back on my feet and say, okay, first of all, I got this confidence thing I need to really get my arms around. But even almost as importantly, I need to tell this story. Because if you look on paper, the career just looks like it's up and to the right. Great education, great role, you know, great career opportunities. It all looks good. But I was doing myself and, more importantly, anyone else that I could potentially help mentor and give advice to. I was giving, I was doing everyone a disservice. Now, little did I know that it would have been a huge badge of honor in Silicon Valley. I, it, you this know, would have okay, been a great can we thing. talk about that a second? <laughs> because as somebody who has chronicled Silicon Valley for 17 years, I have written the narrative that failure is a badge of honor many, many times. But my experience is that when you ask people who have failed to talk about that event, they don't feel that it is a badge of honor. They only feel shame about it. And they mostly won't talk about it. And so I don't know. I don't know if I believe that Silicon Valley really feels that way or likes to talk a big talk. I Here's what I do know. I do know that we really value people that are willing to be bold, take risks. And certainly at Facebook, we, we reward failure as long as you've learned from it and you get back on your feet and you, and you move forward. And I think now that I've been telling my story more, both internally and I'm starting to do it much more externally, the reaction I'm getting is, like, that was really impactful, Carolyn. Like, thank you for sharing that vulnerability and for opening up because more people need to hear that things aren't just always up and to the right. And so whether it's a badge of honor or not, I don't know. But think about it. I just buried for years that I wrote a business plan. I got $5 million of funding while I was in school, had a, had a whole foresight. And by the way, you know, you can it's, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. The company wound up being like the catastrophic failure of the dot-com bust. And, you know, I wasn't part of that. So I had the early right. part of it. And it, it was it's a story that I think people want to hear more about. Vulnerability is one of the most important qualities. I have a whole set of qualities that I'm very um, I'm much more clear on now than I was many years ago that define an enlightened leader versus not. And vulnerability is one of the top most important qualities. People want to know that you are a human that you get up every day like they do and you brush your teeth and you get dressed, but that there are things that don't go perfectly. And that is actually, that's quite honestly why I wanted to have you on the show. You, to me, have always been a leader who embraced vulnerability. And I mean going way back. I remember the first time that we met, it was at a dinner at a tech conference in Aspen, Colorado. And you blew into that dinner and you were a little bit late and you sat down next to me and you were kind of distracted. And 
I'll admit, I was like, oh, she really doesn't want to be sitting here having dinner with me. It's probably about me and this isn't going to go well and we're going to be here for two hours. And and then you turned and you said, you know, I'm sorry, I've just lost a good friend. And we had a beautiful conversation for a couple of hours that cemented a relationship that has lasted now for years. And I always thought that that was brave of you to simply give the whole story. I will never forget that night. I will never forget that day and that evening because I found out that Jen Goodman Lynn, who I went to business school with, who started Cycle for Survival, had passed away. And I was in the Denver airport and, you know, they have the big people movers, right? It's a very big airport. And all I did was like go up and down. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know if I should get back on a plane and go home to New York. I didn't know if I should go to Aspen for the conference and and where you were. I had no idea what to do. And I literally was going up and down the people mover. I decided to get on that plane and I walked into that dinner and I was really nervous because I was like, I, I don't I don't even know how to have a conversation. So I didn't know anything other than I have to be myself. And you were such like the perfect, gracious colleague to have sitting next to me because I remember I remember vividly that conversation and you allowed me to be real and to be human and not sit there and do the pleasantries and, you know, talk business. I needed I needed a friend. I needed to tell somebody that this tragic thing had just happened and you were there for me and that. But I think those are the connections that are important to people. Those are the things that I remember. I don't remember. I barely remember what I had for dinner like the last, you know, two weeks. But I remember that dinner vividly. And that's what defines us when we're when we're human. And so I'm curious what it means to be like a, a vulnerable leader. People care more about me sharing the more personal things than they do the updates on the business because they expect me to, of course, update them on the business and update them on the latest products and things. What they don't expect is for me to share when I'm hurting, when I've lost a friend or someone is sick in my family or I'm worried about my children because they've had a concussion. Like it's those moments because you become relatable to a person. And leaders, I think, have to be very careful. They get put on a pedestal sometimes in companies and people are afraid to tell them what's really going on or they're not sure if those people are even real anymore. Are they just like superwomen and supermen because they do all of these things? And I'm the same as everybody else. Like I have good days. I have bad days. I have things that are that are, you know, wonderful and things that really hurt me. And I think I've learned that the engagement that I get from my teams internally at Facebook is so much higher. And then the other thing that I do, which has been an incredible gift and lesson, is I write an annual vision. And I write that vision as if it's already happened. And then I share it. And I share it with the entire company. Now my teams are doing these vision sessions. We do we take a half day in December and they write them for the following year. But I share and I share and that's vulnerable because I'm not going to accomplish all of those things. Two years ago, I said I was going to write a book. I still haven't written a book, um, but I put it out there. And I just think if, if leaders and people can just be more human and more relatable, I, I think we would all be in such a better place. I think it's when you put the facade and yeah. that armor on, that it's all figured out. You're not approachable, and people are not going to tell you. And also being vulnerable in a weird way boosts your confidence and allows you to use your voice even more. That's true, right? Because it helps you to connect with people. And yes. when you when you are feeling connected to people, it's been my experience, you then feel more grounded in yourself. Correct. So I love this idea of the vision statement. 
So what would a vision look like? Is this a, this is what I want for my life professionally? Here's what I'm going to achieve at Facebook? No. So the vision, um, it would start something like this. So imagine we're in December of 2018. And my first paragraph would say something like, it is December 31st, 2019. I am with my family and friends about to celebrate New Year's Eve. And I reflect on my year that I've just had. And and then I would go into my personal, what I did. I was a more present spouse and I appreciated my husband. I was a more patient daughter. I exercised. I ate healthier. Like, I very detailed. I went and got my annual physical and took care of my health and prioritized that. I try to think about mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual energy in that bucket of personal. Then business. But it's not I hit this number and that's great. It is I am proud of the way Facebook showed up to the business community. We showed up as a team that cared really about clients' business more than we cared about our own business. So I write language to try to bring it to reality. And then I have a a section on community service. I took a trip to Kenya and brought 57 people, and we we did a community immersion for a week. I really was behind the gun safety movement, and these are the accomplishments. And so you write it. It's very detailed. And it's as if it's already happened. So the language of the writing of that, that it's already happened, is a very important step. And then what the research shows is that if you share it, now you can share it with your spouse, your partner, your team, whomever, you're 42% more likely to achieve those goals. Because now someone else is starting to hold you accountable. Coming up after the break, Carolyn Everson tells us how things are going at Facebook. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the LinkedIn Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back with my conversation with Carolyn Everson. So you've been at Facebook now for... I mean, I guess it's only eight years, but given that's more than half of Facebook's life, it kind of feels like a couple of generations of Facebook. What's it like to be a leader internally during that time? It's been a time of incredible transitions. I've seen the company, as you said, go from when I got to Facebook, it was only Facebook, mostly the desktop Facebook. And (laughs) now we are a mobile company. We have Instagram. We have WhatsApp. We have Messenger separated out. We have Oculus. We are thinking about drones and how to provide connectivity to people. And so, like, just... Just the core offering of Facebook between 2011 and 2019 is just entirely different, which makes the job really interesting. 
But the bigger, more interesting, I think, piece of it has been to widen the aperture around what is exactly the impact of having 2.7 billion people connected, which is larger than, than any country in the world. What is the impact of that? And there is no global playbook. There's no mechanism to say this is how you define hate speech. This is how you define the line of freedom of speech. And we are working to create that and try to create it in a very responsible and safe way. And that has been incredibly rewarding and challenging. I There's not one day that I don't wake up and think about the enormity of our responsibility. Not one day. And what I do believe, and the reason why I'm still here, and the reason why I still want to be at Facebook for many years to come, is that I deeply believe in the mission of how you bring the world closer together. We have found that that has had to evolve because at first it was just about connecting people and putting the, you know, the nodes out. That's not enough. People need to have a sense of community. It's very akin to what we talked about in the beginning of this podcast is people want human connections. And when they find them in positive ways, everything from the dog group that in the UK, which is like the sausage dogs, the, you know, the long... Um, Dachshunds. The do- yes, thank you, the Dachshunds. There's a group of Dachshund lovers. But in that group, you've got people that were pro-Brexit and people that were against Brexit. But when they get together, they connect on a human commonality and an interest. The more we can do that, the more we can do that type of work... I think society is going to be way better off in the long term. I think in the short term, there's a ton of challenges and issues that we have to work through. But I deeply believe in Mark's leadership. He is he is steadfast in trying to build something that he is going to be proud of. He's a dad of two girls. You know, I have two girls. And he doesn't think about what's right in the next month or the next quarter. He is trying to plant flags to build something that's going to outlast his time here and and certainly something that his daughters will be proud of one day. That gives me great comfort. We may make mistakes and we do, but I feel very comfortable with the the long-term direction. You've been here eight years. Maybe you'll be here a while longer, but you are still really young in your career. When you are looking back, what will you be able to say that you've done? Well, certainly as I, the way I've described it to my team at Facebook No one is ever going to, at my funeral, no one's ever going to talk about how much revenue I oversaw at Facebook or how many people were on my team or how many clients or advertisers we had. No one's ever going to say that. But what I do hope they will say is that Carolyn was a leader who cared more about people than anything else. She was a leader that believed people could have exceptional careers but also have exceptional personal lives. And that if you round that out with giving back to your community, that's a life well lived. Again, that was Carolyn Everson, Vice President of Global Marketing Solutions at Facebook. And now I want to hear from you. Do you have a story about what it means to be vulnerable at work? Send a voice memo to hellomonday at linkedin.com or post on LinkedIn using the hashtag hellomonday. If you enjoyed listening, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find the show. And join me next week for a conversation with Michael Lombardi. He's an analyst for the NFL and host of the new podcast, The GM Shuffle. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show was produced by Laura Sim with reporting by Caroline Fairchild. The show was mixed by Joe DeGiorgi. Florencia Ariando is head of editorial video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Our music was by Poddington Bear and Pachyderm. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. 
I'm Jesse Hempel. Thanks for listening. Right. So you were, we were actually supposed to chat on Monday. We and were. then on, on Sunday, you got good news. And the good news was essentially the playoffs, right? Yes. So I didn't had, even exactly understand what these had, playoffs um, were. So there's the county division and then there's the prep school division. And on Monday were the semifinals. And she won. And I had scheduled to be with you. And I did make the decision, which felt like a tough decision at first. And then I was like, go back to your vision, like ground it, ground yourself in what you said was important. And I said I was going to be there for the most important moments and semifinals and finals meet that criteria. That's pretty awesome.